mindfulness mode. There's nothing that you can experience in your mortal body that your immortal soul can't love and use as an opportunity to do something amazing with your life. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I am very excited here today. I'm, I'm with a world-renowned human behavior specialist. He's an international best-selling author with over 40 books. He's presented alongside Sir Richard Branson, Stephen Covey, Deepak Chopra, and Wayne Dyer. He was one of the featured speakers in the movie and the book, The Secret. And he's now in a new movie called How Thoughts Become Things. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. John Demartini. Dr. Demartini, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Are you in mindfulness mode today, Dr. Demartini? Uh, yes, I am. Actually, I am. I feel uh, pretty grateful for the presence today. So thank you. Yes. That's great. Well, let's get started with this. What does mindfulness mean to you in your life? <laughs> um, well, I think just what it says. Um, if I could develop that, I'd like to share it. Um, sometimes we go through life and we exaggerate ourselves and puff ourselves up and look down on things. And we're too proud to admit what we see in others inside ourselves. And sometimes we are too humble to admit what we see in others inside us and look up at things. We put things on pedestals and we put things in pits instead of put things in our heart. But when we are too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us, we have disowned parts. We're not full. We're not mindful. Right. But when we actually have reflective awareness and don't have the noise that the judgments bring, and we realize that the seer, the seeing, and the seen are the same, and we're just present with our own reflections, as Schopenhauer says, we become our true self to the degree that we make everyone else ourselves. And when we actually realize that, there's no noise in the brain. We're centered, we're poised, we're present. We're purposeful and we feel mindful because there's nothing missing in us. I always say at the level of the essence of the soul, the state of unconditional love, nothing's missing. But in the state of our judgments through our sometimes uh, terrestrial senses, we think things are missing because we are too proud or too humble to admit those reflections. And so mindfulness is uh, just the ability to be present intimately with the things we see around us within us because it's just a reflection yeah. and we sometimes project our elusive nature onto reality and miss out on the magnificence of mindfulness yeah we really do it really is a reflection and i know one of the things you talk about a lot is that values are central to success can you talk about that and explain what you mean by that yes um Every time we're too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us, we live a disowned part, a dismembered, a deflected, disempowered part inside ourselves. This emptiness, this missingness is a void that wants to be fulfilled. Those voids determine our values because our values are in, intuitively being guided to become aware of the disowned parts. So when we're infatuated with somebody and have them on a pedestal, we're, we're conscious of their upsides, but we're, down, we're unconscious of their downsides. And we resent somebody and put them in a pit, we're conscious of their downsides, unconscious of their upsides. When we love them, we're conscious of both sides. So fulfillment is filling full the awareness of both sides in ourselves and other people. And so our voids determine our values, and our values dictate our perceptions, decisions, and actions. And therefore, our character and our outcomes in life, our, our destinies in life. 
So each individual has a unique set of priorities because they have a unique vantage point. And that set of priorities is literally filtering their realities and making the decisions. And we're looking at making decisions on base whatever we think will give us the greatest advantage over disadvantage at that moment. And so if we know what we value most, our highest value is intrinsic. And we feel inspired and called within spontaneously to take actions on that. And that's where we excel. But we go down the lower values, they're less important. And we need extrinsic motivation uh, to remind us to do them. And that's where we don't excel. So taking the time to fill our day with truly high priority, high value actions, elevate our self-worth, increases our walking of our talk, increases the expansion of our awareness, and allows us to go and excel and wake up our natural born leader and makes us more objective and resilient and adaptable. So living by highest priorities, highest values, and fulfilling the greatest number of voids of the judgments with the greatest degree of appreciation and love for our life is the path of mindfulness and the path of resilience, adaptability, and fulfillment. And I love how your quote from How Thoughts Become Things talks about that very thing. Your quote is, if you fill your day with absolute thoughts that inspire you, you create an outcome of inspiration. You know, we, we don't realize that, that we are spontaneously inspired to do what is deeply most meaningful to us. And if we are deeply reflective and mindful, the intuition guides us to the center where we become inspired. And what happens is that inspiration then becomes the pathway or guidance for living a fulfilling life. And we are so much more adaptable and appreciative of other people when we're inspired by what we're doing. When we have a high priority day that we're inspired by, we can handle almost any perturbation that occurs in the external world. And we see it on the way, not in the way. And when we see life that way, we have gratitude, which opens up the gateway of the heart and allows love to come out. And that inspires us, enthusiasm, brings enthusiasm. And then the more certainty and presence and more magnetism and more opportunities. And we synchronize with the, the people, places, things, ideas, and events in our life and allow us to have our innermost dominant thought become our outermost tangible reality. So how do you help people find what their highest values truly are? I've asked people for over 42 years. I've been teaching 47, going on 48 years. And for, for the last 42 years, I've been helping people determine their values. And if you just walk up to somebody and ask them what their values are, they'll usually tell you kind of cliche idealisms that they've inculcated from their mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, traditions, conventions, and the herd instincts and responsibilities of the external world. It's a kind of a, uh, an ontol deontological duty life that they're living, trying to fit in with the shoulds and ought to, supposed tos and got tos and have tos and must. I have no interest in going by those. I'm interested by what their life demonstrates. And so I had to go and create a, a list of objective determinants. And the way I did that is to look at how you fill your space. Things that are really, really important to you, you keep around you. You keep them proximal. Even a baby in a baby crib, if you put something in there that's valuable, they'll put it in their mouth, they'll look at it, they'll explore it. And if they don't want it, they'll kick it out and scream and they'll get rid of it. So your space is an indicator of what you value most and things that are really valuable you keep around you. Then there's time. You find time, make time, spend time on things that are really valuable to you. When it's really important to you, you find the time for it. 
Then I look at what energizes you. When you're doing something that's really high in your values, your energy goes up. When you're doing something low in your values, your energy goes down. And then I look at what you spend your money on. You make money, find money, spend money on things they're valuable to, but you don't want to go there and spend money on things that don't. It's not valued enough. Then I look at where you're most ordered in your life. You have a lot of order and organization around things that are valuable. My research, my teaching, I love. So I keep it organized. My travels, I keep it organized. But the rest of it, I delegate. I don't, I don't have much order around that. And so then I look at where you're most disciplined. What do you spontaneously do without ever having to have an extrinsic motivator to get you to do? I always say motivation is a symptom, never a solution for humanity. By, by living intrinsically driven, spontaneously inspired, we excel. So look at where you're disciplined. Then I look at where you, what you think about, what you visualize, and what you internally dialogue with yourself about about how you would really love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true. You know, if there's no evidence of it coming true, it's, it's a fantasy. It's what is showing evidence. So I have a, I have a very high value in researching and teaching and I, I love doing that. And I have a tremendous amount of evidence to do that for 47, 48 years. But I also have a fantasy. I want to be an international sex symbol like Hugh Hefner, <laughs> but there's zero evidence of that coming true. <laughs> So those are fantasies, even though I come up with that fantasy. Or sometimes people say, I want to be financially independent, but there's zero evidence of them actually building wealth. So I'm not interested in fantasies. I'm interested in what your life demonstrates because your actions speak louder than all the fantasies. Then I look at what do you want to converse with other people about most? What do you keep wanting to bring the conversations to? How's your business? How's your golf game? How's your health? How's your, your, your meditation? Then I look at what is it inspires you that brings a tear of inspiration when you get to participate in it, do it, think about it, or who are the people that inspire you? What's common to them? Because it's usually aligned with what you, value, what you value most. Then I look at what is it are the most consistent and persistent goals that you keep pursuing, that you keep demonstrating evidence that you're achieving and you're making incremental momentum building achievements. And the last one is what do you love studying about, reading about, learning about? listening to on YouTubes and videos. What is it that you want to fill your mind? Because whatever is valuable to you, you want to learn. But if you meet somebody and you want to value, you want to get to know them. We have a spontaneous yearning to want to know what's valuable to us. And sometimes children in school are not honored for what they value. And they're being projected expectations to learn things that are generic, but not necessarily inspiring to the child. And then they're put into labels, attention deficit, defiant disorders, and all these labels because they spontaneously want to learn what's important to them. And a, a teacher's responsibility is to learn how to communicate what they want to teach in terms of what that child wants to learn. But if you look at those 13 value determinants and write down three answers to each, the three things you fill your space with, the three things most time spent, you'll see a reiterated answer. And the one that shows up most, most often, second most often, third most often, will definitely reflect what they value most. Their life will be demonstrating it. But your answers have to be integral to what you objectively see in your life and not what you think it should be, ought to be, what it wished it would be, or what it hoped to be, or what it used to be, but what it actually is presently in your life. This is where mindfulness is so valuable because you can get mindful and get present and then ask those 13 questions. They're on my website. They can do it for free. And in the process of doing that, all of a sudden they'll get an honest answer and they'll go, now I can see why are my decisions are the way they are. I can see why I, I, I label things supportive or challenging according to those values. And I realize where I excel and where I end up with frustrations. 
and it reveals your behavior. And so I think that that's the key to starting uh, to have a fulfilling life is to finding out what you really have as values. And if you live by your highest values, you will know yourself, you'll be willing to be yourself, and you'll end up loving yourself. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And of course, your website is drdemartini.com, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. So check out that website, Mindful Tribe, and, and get a hold of what your values truly are, not what, what you think they should be or what you would like them to be. Now, in 2008, you published a book called The Gratitude Effect, and that was a very wildly uh well, you know, successful book. And let's talk about gratitude. Why is gratitude such an important part of mindfulness? And why does it feed us so much? Well, there's two forms of gratitude. in the way I look at it, there's a superficial gratitude when somebody does something you really like that supports your values, that stimulates serotonin and dopamine in the brain. And you go, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you just kind of smile on your face. That's a kind of a superficial gratitude. And it's easy to do that. Almost anybody can do that when they're getting their values met because they just, it's a spontaneous response. And then there's a deep gratitude. And this is sometimes called grace. This is sometimes associated with presence and more of a certainty. When you discover the hidden order in the events that challenge you and then realize now I see why that's in my life right now. And it's actually extracting out of the challenge the opportunities that are sitting before you when you normally would want to have an instinct to respond by avoidance. But when you go deeper and find the hidden order in the apparent chaos, and then all of a sudden see the balance of life, the, the, the natural equilibrium or equanimity that's there, and there's no judgment, there's just an awe. Now you have a true grace and it brings a tear of gratitude. And it is that one that really opens your heart. Many people confuse when they're supported with a dopamine rush with an open heart. But when they actually see an awe-inspiring order to the chaos that they perceived, and then all of a sudden they go, oh, they get a kind of a gamma burst in the brain, and they have this aha, and they have this a tear of gratitude for the way it is. And in that moment, their human will matches the way it's designed, on tatsat, as it is. And in that state, a true grace occurs. And that literally, that state of equanimity, that poised state of presence, that allows you to have literally non-judging, non-dualistic state. And in that moment, that gratitude is the key that opens up the gateway of the heart and allows love to radiate out. And, ra and, and love is like a, a light that radiates out, that window washes the mind and allows you to have confirmation that you're present and authentic with inspiration. That brings the entheos, the divine within our own body, our God within, if you will, or the, the magnificent, St. Augustine said, the will of God is equilibrium. When the will of man matches the will of God, he's graced by the presence of the divine expression, which is the most inspiring state. In that state, there's no wavering emotions of judgment. There's just certainty and there's presence. And it is that where we, are, we have lucidity. That's when we have a inner guidance to do the most profound contributions and innovations and genius for the planet. That's when we serve with equanimity and, and equity other people. And we have sustainable fair exchanges and transactions that actually create, in a sense, a persistent um, result. And it's about that point that we build momentum, incremental momentum and ever greater achievements. So that is a very important thing. Key, gratitude is the key that starts the whole process. 
I keep a list of gratitudes every day. I have 25 volumes, and they're about a thousand pages of gratitudes every single day. I've been doing it for way back. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, <laughs> so you were. I was born on Thanksgiving Day. So my mother told me when I was four to make sure I count my blessings. One of my earlier books was called Count Your Blessings. I got that from my mother before she died. So count your blessings because if you're grateful for what you got, you get more to be grateful for. Gratitude literally opens the doorway for opportunity and allows you to go and rest at night and allows you to be more clear-minded. So I could go on. Every area of our life is impacted by it. There's less noise in the brain. There's more achievements in business. There's more likely to have appreciation and investments. There's more of a deep meaning and full relationships. There's more likely to be leader if you're actually appreciating your people you're leading. Your physiology responds epigenetically with a poised autonomics. Your, your true equanimity and grace is, is, the, is the spiritual path. I mean, it's, it's the cornerstone of all of our, the, the essence behind our existence. There are so many people that have lost jobs, lost businesses. They feel like they've lost everything as part of this pandemic. I know that they can start with gratitude. That can be something that can help us move forward. But what other words of advice do you have, Dr. Demartini? Well, I'm a firm believer that the master lives in a world of transformation, not the illusions of gain and loss. I've been teaching a process in my signature program, The Breakthrough Experience, for many years, 32 years now, uh, a little process on when you perceive there's a loss. See, there's never a loss. There's a transformation. I, I, was, I was a young 14-year-old when I was living on the streets back then. And I, um, I realized that when my parents weren't there as living on the streets, I had different people playing out surrogate roles of the parents. And I watched all these people play this role out. And I became aware at age 14 that it wasn't missing. It was morphing into different forms. And so when somehow the door shuts, the window opens, when something you think you've lost, there's something that's gained. And so there's always a conservation, you might say, of energy and matter, and it's just transforming. And the master is asking the questions, what do I perceive is missing? What's the new form it's in? What's the benefit of the new form? What would be the drawback if I was stuck in the old form? And it's the attachment to old forms that make us non-resilient and non-adaptable. The Buddha says the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So we get highly attached to those things and we get infatuated with something and we fear it's lost or highly resentful of something and fear it's gain. The world and the external world runs us. But when we actually neutralize our mind and become present, we're highly adaptable and resilient and we realize nothing's missing, it's morphing form and we're fully aware of the new form and we're grateful for the new form because it's in line with what we value most. And there's never a shutting door without an opportunity. So I always say, make a list right now of the things that are going on in your life that you are grateful for, the opportunities that are there. I have thousands, I mean thousands sent to me in the last three months uh, from students around the world of all the opportunities that have come out of what this is called St. Corona. And if we sit there and we look and become victims of our history and not masters of our destiny, then the external world runs us. But if we become master of our destiny, the internal dream runs us. And we see things, how it's fulfilling what we want in life. How is it on the way, not in the way? And how is whatever we think is missing, how is it there, present? And by asking that question, we transform our perceptions and our attitudes. William James said the greatest discovery of our generation is that human beings can alter their lives by alternate perceptions and attitudes of mind. 
So it's not what happens to us. It's what we decide to perceive, decide, and act from it. So I'm a firm believer in to stop whatever we think is missing, what new form is it in? And I assure you that it's there if we just take the time to look. But if we run the story and become victims of the story, instead of actually masters of our destiny, we'll hold ourselves back instead of give ourselves permission to do something extraordinary. Wow, that's that's great advice. Do you meditate? And if you do, what does your meditation look like? <laughs> I started meditating in 1972 um, at a sunset recreation hall on the North Shore of Oahu. Um, I was a long-haired hippie surfer at the time, and I met Paul Bragg. You may have heard of Paul C. Bragg. Yes. Bragg's amino acids and things, and Patricia Bragg. And Bragg spoke there to a class of 35 students. On a, I was sitting on a little wooden floor on a little towel. And um, he, he introduced alpha meditation, how to go into a state of alpha, about seven and eight cycles per second. And he trained us on how to meditate and use our minds to center ourselves and to be present. Now, from that point, I started learning all kinds of different meditation techniques from yogis and mystics and books and you name it. And um, I, I kind of synthesized them into kind of my own kind of pathway, you might say. And I learned all kind of breathing techniques and visual techniques and heart listening techniques and you name it. I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds of them out there. I'm sure you've, you've seen them. I studied transcendental meditation with Maharishi in 75. I, I did all these different techniques. But then I realized that that's still a mind game. All the techniques were really mind games to me. It really didn't matter if I was sitting or lying or sitting upright or with a T-bar or, or sitting in the water or in a float tank. As long as I was able to get present, it didn't matter where I was, what position I was or time of day it was. None of those really became important because those were just illusions of the transient mind. So I didn't get stuck in any one technique, but I realized that every technique had a service. And I would use different things. Sometimes I would use breathing techniques. When I had very little sleep and I was on a plane, I'd meditate. And I have three or four hours and then I have to speak when I land. And I'd use different techniques for that. So I could be just sitting. I could be standing in an elevator doing a one-minute meditation technique. I could be laying in a bed sometimes uh, in my first get up in the morning and do a meditation technique and think of what I'm grateful for. I don't have a fixed um, thing. I've just kind of inculcated bits and pieces and developed some of my own ideas along the way and studied physiology and, and, and brain functions and trying to maximize my potential by using every technique at different moments in my life. And, and so as long as I'm graceful, as long as I'm uh, seeing things and not judging things, my mind is mindful. Very good. Very good. I always ask a question about bullying because I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for a long time. And I wonder if you have a story, it could be a story from when you were a child or in business or some kind of story where as a result of bullying, maybe mindfulness would have made a difference to how that came out. I definitely had um, a gentleman who <laughs> named Mike. I'm not going to give this full name, but it's a gentleman like Mike. I was 12 and I was getting on a bus riding to school. I lived in the country before I left home. I left home at 13, but I was living there. And this, I got on the bus, I sat there. And on the next bus stop, another boy got on. And he said, you're sitting in my seat. 
I went, okay. And I moved over to another seat. And he walked over there and said, you're sitting in my seat. And then I walked over here and he said, you're sitting in my seat. I said, well, would you tell me where your seat isn't? He says, I own the bus. <laughs> he's just a kid. He was yeah. 12 and a half. Yeah. But he's bigger. And I didn't know what to do because I, I was like, there's no place to go. So he eventually hit me across the face uh -huh. and punched me. And I didn't know what to do because I, I, that wasn't my modus operandi to, to hit back. I wasn't thinking like that. And so I, I basically just humbled myself and just put, you know, didn't, didn't try to stand up to him, just humble myself. And the next uh, afternoon, that, that afternoon, on the way back, he did the same thing. So this guy became kind of a, the, the bully. Mm -hmm. I think we all have a few of those in our life. Right. And, and, uh, and then I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start bodybuilding I, I, just to prepare, prepare in case I have to defend myself. I didn't, I didn't want to go and aggressively attack him. I just wanted, and he inspired me to do bodybuilding. And that led me to uh, learning martial arts. It, it taught me to do bodybuilding and muscular activity. It got me in shape. I, I went up to 180 pounds, age 13, with a 24-inch waist. Whoa. And, and then I started attracting a lot of girls. <laughs> and so this guy that was my bully actually got me in shape and I got bigger than him. And then when I did, I never had to fight him. He, he became my friend when all the girls started hanging out with me. Uh, and so I, I just noticed that all of a sudden I was now getting attention and he wanted the attention. And so now he was hanging out with me and he became a friend and we went surfing together. <laughs> so I didn't have to go and fight the guy, but I ended up bodybuilding just in case. And then I got into bodybuilding because it was starting to give me more attention from the girls. And I actually felt more confident. So he stimulated in me uh, an empowerment journey that then eventually neutralized it. I always say if we, any area of our life, we don't empower other people overpower. And the purpose of them overpowering us is to make us go back to priorities to empower our life. If we don't empower ourselves intellectually, we'll be told what to think. If we don't empower ourselves in business, we'll be told what to do. If we don't empower ourselves in finance, we'll be told what we're worth. If we don't empower ourselves in relationship, it may be told and pushed around at home. If we don't empower ourselves socially, we'll be told what propaganda to believe. If we don't get empowered physically, we'll be told what drugs to take and what organs to remove. If we don't empower ourselves spiritually, we may be told some dogma that's antiquated. We have to go inside and empower ourselves and become an unborrowed visionary of what's truly inspiring to us to create something original, not conformant, but actually enormous and give ourselves permission to empower. And when we do, the world on the outside rewards us with people appreciating us because they're yearning to want to do the same. And so then they honor us. And then all of the bullies or whatever, in my opinion, are just trying to get me to get to that. And so if I see it on the way, not in the way, it's transient. And then it served its purpose. And I learned to become a friend with the guy who was the bully. Wow. Great reasons to become empowered. I really like that. So why did you leave home at the age of 13? When I was born, I had an arm and leg deformity and I couldn't move. I, my, I couldn't walk properly and had to wear these big clunky braces on my arm and leg, a Forrest Gump kind of thing. People kind of ridiculed you because you look kind of odd and they don't want to befriend you or something. When I was four, I got out of the braces and all I wanted to do is run. And I just wanted to run, 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 because I could do it. I also had a speech impediment. So I used to, when I was one and a half, I had to go to a speech pathologist to age four because I couldn't make noise properly, sounds properly. And I had to put buttons and strings in my mouth and all kinds of stuff. When I got to first grade, my teacher had to call my parents to the school because I wasn't able to read. 
and they put me in a dunce cap and faced the window. And I, I, they, she said that I'm afraid your son's never going to be able to read or write, never be able to communicate, never amount to anything, never go very far in life. So the only way I went through school, elementary school, was with the help of asking the smartest kids, smartest girl, Martha Rose, and Jerry Sampson and Clinton Duvall, these guys that were the smartest kids. I'd ask them, what did you get out of that book? What did you get out of that lesson today? What'd you? And I would get enough to pass. And I made it through elementary school by those questions. And I'm known for my questions today, so I can actually see that everything has been on the way. Anything you can't say thank you for in life is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. And those are all perfect things in my journey. When I got to be 12, my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas. And there we lived in the country, and that's where I had to ride the bus. And it was a low socioeconomic area. And so people didn't use thinking and talking as much as hand, fists, and fighting, Mm. (laughs) bullying. When I got there, I didn't have any smart kids and I couldn't read. And um, I didn't read till I was 18. And so what happened was uh, I ended up failing and I ended up dropping out of school. My dad knew that I had learning problems and he tried to train me at a very young age to be street smart and be, you know, entrepreneurial. In fact, I had to pay $7.50 a week to live at the house to pay for food, clothing and rent when I was nine. And I, had, I, I, I did all the landscaping in the neighborhood to make money to pay for that. And my dad was teaching me how to do it. He made me save money and pay for rental equipment and, and put stuff into a, a, a piggy bank. He, he was trying to prepare me for the real world because he knew I couldn't read. So by the time I was 13, I had picked up surfing as a sport and I was excelling at it. And my dad, I told my dad that I wanted to go to California to surf and I wanted to go to Hawaii and ride the big waves. And I could see that he always wanted to go to California and never made it. And he also knew that I'm not going to make it in academics, but he does have a skill with sports. Go. So they wrote up a notarized piece of paper saying my son's not a runaway. And they dropped me off on Interstate 10. And I hitchhiked to California when I was, you know, at a young age. I left, left at 13. And I was a street kid. And it was an adventure. And I made it to California I met some amazing people on the way, even Howard Hughes, believe it or not. And then I ended up uh, making it to California surfing there and then eventually made it, uh, panhandled enough money to make it to Hawaii. And I first lived under a bridge. Then I lived in a park bench, then in a bathroom when it rained, then in an abandoned car. I kept social climbing. And eventually I, you know, I, I was riding big waves in Hawaii and got in surf movies and things like that. And then I nearly died. And that's when I met Paul Bragg, right after I nearly died. So. Uh- and it what happened that caused you to nearly die? I was expanding my consciousness through not natural means. Uh, <laughs> Attempting to do the things that you did in the 60s. Right. But, but what happened, I ended up with strychnine and cyanide poisoning. And I was unconscious for three and a half days. Luckily, a lady found me in a tent because I would have died if it wasn't for her. And she led me to the health food store, which led me to the yoga class to help me overcome my my spasms from the strychnine poisoning. So every one of those things I look back now are, are exactly what I needed to be where I am today. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I'd be, I'm grateful for all those components. I tell people, don't look at your life as in the way, look at it as on the way. There's nothing that you've experienced. There's nothing that you can experience in your mortal body that your immortal soul can't love and use as an opportunity to do something amazing with your life. Well, it's certainly amazing that you didn't read until you're 18 years old, and now you've you've written over 40 books. If 
I were a person who didn't know your material and was just hearing you for the first time, what book would you recommend that you've written that I should, should get first? Well, the Values Factor book is a more recent book. I'm working on another now, but um, to help you identify what you really value, I think that's a big one. And then the Breakthrough Experience. The Breakthrough Experience is exactly what it's titled, uh, help you break through whatever you perceive is in the way in your life to help you turn it into on the way so you can be thankful for your life and keep building momentum. I'm a firm believer that uh, small incremental steps towards big dreams is amazing. Piggy banks become biggie banks. Little actions make big dreams. And I'm a firm believer that if you just do a little action step every day that's priority towards what it is you want, amazing things will unfold. Wow, what a story. (laughs) That is one incredible story that you have. My goodness. Um, Well, I want to move forward and I I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who's one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Well, without a doubt, Paul Bragg started the journey. I started meditating every day when I met him. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? It's allowed me to be aware of the illusions that my emotions are distracted by and allows me to calm them down and center themselves. Without that mindfulness, I might not have developed my method, the Demartini method, which is a series of questions that centers you after being perturbed by illusions of the outside world. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Well, when the breath wanders, so does the mind. And as the mind wanders, so does the breath. One who can govern their breath can govern their mind. And one who can govern their mind can govern their life. So mastering the breath is a is a very useful tool in the mastery of your own destiny. You've written so many great books, Dr. Demartini. Are there any other books that you would recommend on this area of mindfulness? There's, there's two volumes that I tell people that's a worthy read. And it was by Mortimer Adler. It's called Syntopicons, Volume 1 and 2. S-Y-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N, Volumes 1 and 2. It's about 2,000 pages between the two books, but it's really one book. And it is the synthesis of the greatest minds over the last 2,700 years discussing the greatest and most important topics a human being can explore to master their life. And it's, there, it's a real masterpiece. Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, created a book series called The Great Ideas from the Great Minds. And this is the two first introductory volumes of that set. And I recommend that those two books to any human being who wants to become a master of their own life. Well, that's fascinating because nobody has ever recommended those books before on my show. So I really appreciate that. And they will be in the show notes at mindfulnessmode.com. Now, is there an app that you would recommend that can help people with mindfulness? Well, there, the app, I'm working on an app right now on the Demartini method, which is for, for mindfulness. I hope to have that out soon. I, I don't know. If they look on my website, it, it'll be soon out. That's the one that I'm, I'm working on right now. I wish I could tell you, I've been doing it so long in my own life. I don't use an app so much. I'm, I'm actually not all that tech savvy. I, I delegate everything, but research, write, travel, teach. I'm pretty well useless in anything but researching, writing, traveling, and teaching. So every bit of my technology is pretty well delegated out. So I don't say, I don't even have a cell phone. I don't keep a cell phone because I, I, like, I like to be able to take command of my daily life without any outside distractions. But I, um, 
So I don't have an app other than the one that I'm hopefully come out with very soon. And that app that you're going to come out with, can you kind of outline what that app will do for the user? It, it, what it's designed to do is whenever you're confronted by a, a perception that distracts your mind and keeps you from being present, it's a series of questions to ask yourself inwardly while you're in meditation, if you want, um, to be able to dissolve that distraction so you're poised again. It's, it, I call it the Demartini method, but it's, it's a series of questions that allows you to, in a sense, have deep reflection and realize that the world around you is nothing but you. It's your interpretation, and you have command over your interpretation. And it, it holds you accountable to become present and not distracted by some judgment that's an illusion in your outer environment. Well, I was very impressed with some of the things that you said on the new movie, How Thoughts Become Things. And I thought it was, it was pretty fascinating. Now, Mindful Tribe, you can get that movie. Go to mindfulnessmode.com slash how thoughts and you can download the movie for yourself. But can you share with us an experience you had as part of being on that movie that was memorable for you? Well, Doug, who is uh, an airman, who's the one who's put this movie together. I've been blessed to be in four of his movies. Um, you know, he, he in, entails and engulfs the, the thoughts and teachings of many speakers, and he puts that together into a movie beautifully. And the thing that I, I like about it is meeting the people, actually meeting the individuals that are involved and listening to their perspectives and their articulations that allow the same universal principles to be expressed in new ways. So we all can be enriched by just being in the presence of those individuals. So I think the, the most highlight of that is the meeting of the individuals. Some of them I met, some of them I hadn't. Um, and just listening in and watching their perspective, because every different perspective gives you a new angle and it gives you a, a more solidification of the principles that you can apply to your life. Well, I'm looking forward to interviewing all the guests from the show, and I've already interviewed some of them, but I'm very honored to have interviewed you. It's really exciting to hear your story and your wise words of advice. And why don't you leave our listeners with one final word of advice? The magnificence of who you truly are. The magnificence of who you truly are is far greater than any fantasies you'll ever impose on yourself. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Don't try to be second at being somebody else. Be first at being you. And the real you is what you value most and what you spontaneously are inspired from within to fulfill and to express. So give yourself permission to do something extraordinary on planet Earth by just being you. No matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love just the way you are. Beautiful advice. Go to Dr. Demartini's website, D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com and learn more. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Demartini. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and it's great uh, dialogue. Nice my, uh, dog. My may, pleasure. May we, all, may we continue to express our mindfulness in a daily way to create a ripple effect and exemplify what's possible. Absolutely. Thank you again. Bye now. 
Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.